Professor Roger Kneebone started his career as a trauma surgeon uh, and then following five years of work in South Africa returned to the UK, in fact to Wiltshire, which is um, a contrast that we need to talk about um, perhaps. Um, and since uh, the 90s then, his research has focused on simulating highly realistically medical situations. Um, very much, in fact, exploring the synergies between biomedical science, the arts, the humanities, and performance. Um, he's completely impassioned about medicine's public engagement in a way that is refreshingly honest rather than the rhetorical transparent. Uh, now, particularly in his role as Wellcome Trust Engagement Fellow. So please, a very warm welcome to Professor Nebone. Um, so I have memories, strong memories, and nightmares, in fact, of being a medical student and um, being scrubbed for theatre. And the main fear was of being, having to be sterile. And in fact, I'd get it wrong repeatedly. And um, I might as well tell you about my recurring dream of scrubbing. And as I finished scrubbing, I'd kind of leave the sink and just hit the sink and have to re-scrub. <laughs> and it sort of... Uh, and I got it right once in real life until a surgeon said he was looking for his chair and I kind of grabbed it and passed it to him. <laughs> but and I didn't get away with it. But the idea of an operating theatre as a sterile environment, which it is, um, translates in my memory and mind now as it being a very, uh, in terms even vocally sterile, a controlled um, silent space. But talking to you, in fact, this doesn't seem to be the case, and voices infuse even this sterile environment. Mm. Well, I thought I'd, I'd start by giving you a glimpse of what goes on in the operating theatre, because I think there are a whole load of different voices there, some of them that you hear, some of them that you don't, some of them expressed in words, some of them through movement, all sorts of complex things going on. Um, and I'll just start by giving you a few glimpses of the operating theatre. Uh, I hope this won't make you squeamish, but, but all of you now have radio for masks, so if anybody um, does feel at all queasy, this would be a good time to, uh, to put them on. Um, so, I can see something that you can't. It's a privileged view of the operating theatre, which I've got on my laptop, but for it'll, some reason it'll get there, isn't it? we haven't got. Um, it's warming up. Just so, while that is warming yeah. up, so the transition from being a, um, a surgeon to a general practitioner, is at least as stark, it'll arrive, it always does, um, <laughs> at least as stark as being the transition presumably from Africa to Wiltshire. Yeah, there, there were some changes, some yeah. differences I noticed between being in Soweto, which is where I was doing trauma surgery, and being in Wiltshire, where there are some similarities but even more differences. Um, <laughs> and the, 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 the differences particularly were of horizon, really. So as a surgeon in Africa, I was sort of waiting there while loads of people came past, having been seriously injured, and I'd patch them up in one way or another, and then they'd go away and I'd never see them again. And I spent a lot of my time in the operating theatre. And then as a GP, it turned it round from, from one way of looking at things to another, where I wasn't in the operating theatre. But I was seeing loads of people who often had surgical things going on. But that was just a part of a much longer picture. I'm going to take this up. It's warming up, actually. I can hear the um, projector doing something. Will someone from tech tell me this is going to turn on in a minute? OK. Is it done? Okay, there we go. It's good. Is it done? Yeah. Back on. Back on. 
this would be a bad time for the joke oh. about how many surgeons it takes to... <laughs> but I can have a go. OK. Ah, right, right. So, um, so going back then to that surgical time, here, here is a, here's the sort of view that I think a lot of people have of the operating theatre of a, um, you know, a group of three or four people uh, tightly clustered around a patient who, in a sense... In one sense, of course, is very much there, but in another sense, is not there because we don't hear from that patient. They're under anaesthetic, and we're seeing we're seeing the surgeons. And a lot of people think about the operating theatre as the domain of surgeons, but there are many other perspectives of looking at it. This is looking at, a, at the wider team. So, in the foreground now, we've got the scrub nurse, whose job it is to to hand instruments to to the to the members of the surgical team. Right over there in the distance, just at the back, um, you can see something blue, which is the anaesthetist whose role is actually much more prominent than it appears from this picture because it's the anaesthetist who keeps you safely asleep and, even more important, wakes you up again after the operation. And so there are lots of things going on here. There are dialogues that are not only people talking but people moving things around, exchanging things. Um, and so when I was doing this, this is from those days when I was in Africa, I'm on the right there, doing an operation as part of a team um, we're not looking at one another. We're looking very intently at what we're doing. And even if we do look at one another, we haven't got the normal cues that Sam and I have at the moment, where we can see one another's faces because it's blanked out by masks and things. So there are all kinds of distortions. Um, and so when you're doing something that requires you to look in great detail and not take your eyes off it, it makes an awful lot of sense for people to put things into your hands when you need them without you having to ask or not ask very much. And there's a very, I think, very beautifully sort of choreographed um, coordination of people's hands around the operating theatre. And how that comes about is very interesting because nobody tells you you must learn choreography of your hands. They just expect you to kind of learn it. And you do. Um, do, you, do you just, can you just expand on that a bit? How yeah. Do you, what do you mean exactly? So, I mean, it's interesting because we were talking about operating theatres and the performance. And it's, of a, it's very and much a choreography thing. Yeah. It, it's, uh, you're on display. Uh, you're doing something, you're performing surgery in every sense of performance, I think. So you start off, you know, open somebody up, and once you've done that, you really have to kind of carry on. You can't just say, sorry, I, I think I won't do this one today. Um, you know, it's a bit like being here or out there on the Wigmore Hall or something. You know, once it's started, Complete. for better or for worse, it's got to finish. And so there is a... And you're doing it in front of other people. Uh, and it requires coordination of all sorts of people to make it to make it. Successful. And the choreography, choreography of the hands, are you... So, you're almost suggesting there's a lot of non-verbal. A huge amount of non-verbal, because if we're operating together, I'm, uh, I might be doing something, you're assisting me, you're helping. That means that I, uh, I need you to, to do things that can't be done by one pair of hands alone. And so you may have two, three, even four people all sort of using their hands together, standing very closely, um, and, and having to interlock fingers and hands, not get in the way, and let all sorts of things happen. And it's, it's communicated, not just by words, but by other things, because it's all about materials. And so here's a very brief clip of an eminence. Sorry, need to, like, to warm back. Has it gone off? No. Go back up again. We'll be there in a bit. The projector's gone to sleep. I hope it's the only, only the projector. Away. I hope. But, uh, <laughs> so, what do we? Um, it'll, it'll, it'll just come back. Will it just reappear? And so, a lot of the conversation, a lot of the communication that goes on, is mediated through hands, through tiny gestures. If you're holding something in slightly the wrong place, a surgeon may sort of tap you slightly. 
It's um, a bit more than a tap. I've been there. <laughs> okay, well, it's a mixed audience. So, Let's be honest. They, they may express in some non-verbal way their, their disapprobation or uh, discomfort with what you're doing. And you have to learn to interpret that in Mike. You do learn to interpret it pretty quickly. Yes. Um, even, though the, um, even though the communicative... Um, approach is unorthodox, but you pretty soon learn what's going and on. And there's an extraordinary amount going on in people's eyes, isn't there? Yes, there is. Um, uh, but also in people's movement. Yeah. And, in how, and, and I think one of the things that you, that you learn in the operating theatre is how to, how to speak a different language, how to, how to read bodies, how to yes. read movement, how to read silence. And so when you, you might say you want to do something and somebody doesn't say anything, it might mean that they don't think that's a good idea, for instance. Mm. Or, or whatever, and so there is a whole, you become, it's a bit like Fieglever was saying when you put on your mask, yes. you, you, you're listening intently and you're blanking out other uh, distractions and so you listen in a different way. I think in the operating theatre you learn to speak the language of the operating theatre in a different way. Um, well, at least we know where we are, that's, that's good. Um, <laughs> learn to speak the language, uh, but, but that's through, through listening, through thinking through observing right. and through making mistakes and getting shouted at when you get it wrong. Because you're misreading the cues. Because you're misreading the yeah. cues. So if something, an operation is getting to a difficult... If, if, if at the beginning everybody's talking about their holidays and who they're going out with and all that kind of thing and it's going very smoothly um, and then something goes wrong and the, the main surgeon is focusing very much on what he's doing and you're just holding a retractor. If you then talk to somebody about where you're going to go on your holiday at that moment, it doesn't go down well. And you, you learn that very fast. Um, and so I think there's a process of becoming sort of enculturated into that, that community. Particular world, yeah. yeah. We should um, seize the opportunity for this clip. I will indeed. And I was, going to show you, I was going to show you a brief example of stuff that can be conveyed without being... Uh, spoken. So over there on the left we've got a very experienced surgeon. He's recently retired as the president of the College of Surgeons of England, so he's done this kind of operation loads of times. What are they called Mackinder. Mackinder, yeah. So that's a cystic. He's teaching a young surgeon. A develop coming up way sound from the liver bed. Oh yeah, there you go. We'll make the safer plane then. Uh, and there's this reassuring thing where you put a finger in. Try, just try that. Just ease a finger and then feel the... Uh... So he's saying to his young surgeon, at this point, you, there's this reassuring thing you do. You, you, you put a finger in there and you feel the... Um, and that's all he can say. Because it involves... Understanding what he means involves putting your finger in there and feeling the... Um, now, you don't see this in textbooks, because at this point, in a, in, a, in a gallbladder operation, it doesn't say, you know, after the, you get to point five where you put your finger in and feel the... Um, because it doesn't make any sense. But actually, if you're learning to, to do this operation, that's exactly what you do. You need to know what it feels like to put your finger in there and feel the... Um, and so there's a lot of that kind of language that's mediated through... through it ha happens at a sort of point of intersection between your hands and the patient's insides and the instruments that you're using and the social setting in which you're doing it that, that goes that is quite different from normal vocal speech but uh, uh, in a public that largely justifiably struggling to trust the health service mm. the idea that someone would be taught to feel the um yeah. by doing that would yeah. fill us with horror well, I hope not. Well, it might. Because, I mean, we all... What is the... Uh, that's yeah, what we... Where all, is exactly. It, yeah. But it doesn't matter what it is as long as you know what it is. And you can do it, does it? Yeah. Because, I mean, that's the important yeah. thing. Is yeah, that yeah, you're yeah. learning to do the job. You're yes. learning to do the operation safely. And it's not that it's 
um, it's imprecise or unknown, I think he knows exactly what he's talking about. It's just that words won't do it. Yes. And it's, it's mediated through a different approach. It's mediated through saying, you know, c come here, you put your finger here where mine is, and I'll show you what you should be feeling. Yes. So it's not that it's not communicating, and it's not that it's not a precise experience that he wants to convey. It's just that he can't articulate it in words. He can articulate it in other words, in other ways, but yes. not through words alone. The projector has um, gone back to sleep. Which is... Um, can, can we sort of wake it up at all, do you think? Yeah. Um, should I keep it moving? Yes. Should I keep, yeah, keep moving? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, here we go. This is coming back. Anyway. Because I was going to show I you... Think it's 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 Sorry? Um, Pippa, are we out there? Is the projector waking up? Right, we're working oh. on it. Oh, no, that's really helpful. I wondered what the diagnosis was, and now, now, now I know. That's great. That's great, OK. Um, yeah, I think we've gathered that. While we're waiting, yes. should, should we just talk about yeah. a bit more about that, then? Yeah. Because, um, because it, you know, you're, you're absolutely right that there's an internal choreography, and in fact, this extends beyond the operating theatre, doesn't it? Absolutely. To the health service, Definitely. whereby... Um, the view from the outside could readily be, indeed the view from the inside very often, is this is complete chaos. How does this work? Yeah. Yet there's an odd... But it does. It does somehow. Most of the time, it does work. And, and when you... Well, from my experience, when you go into this world, first of all, you, you, it's, very, it's very odd. Never been in it before. Surprisingly quickly, you become accustomed to its ways. And you, 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 you learn how it works, and you think that that's how it... Well, it is. I mean, you, you experience what it's like, and you, you learn to work within it. And usually, I think, you stay in there, and you just accept it. And things, most of the time, go all right. It's not until you get somebody from outside to come and have a look at it. I was working with a group of Formula One racing drivers recently, and uh, we were sort of swapping stories, and we went over to, to their place to see what they do, and they came over to our place to see what we do, and we invited them to take part in some operations through simulation. And they said things like, this is unbelievable. We had no idea it was so chaotic. Um, <laughs> And we were quite proud, actually, because it was a good operation that went really well. And then, so, so because people who, who come from a place where shaving 0.05 of a millisecond yes. or something off a 20-lap lap, lap, um, performance makes all the difference between coming first or coming 20th, operate in a different way. And they, they have this completely different approach to being consistent and being, um, being regimented and being highly, highly um, prescribed that just doesn't happen in the operating theatre, and all operating theatres are very different. Could we, just because I'm conscious of the projectors... Yeah. Oh, um, it's back. Could well, we done. just go to some Great. instances of that? Yeah. I, I will actually, I'll just show you, first of all, one instance of when things um, happen automatically. Very senior team, elderly uh, surgeons. Harold Ellis on the left is 86. He's anaesthetist top right, 86. Um, they're scrub nurse over there, much younger, but they've worked together for 40 years. I brought them back to recreate, a bit like the Rolling Stones again in Hyde Park, <laughs> to recreate an operation from the 1980s. Um, and we're just seeing that happening in the Science Museum. So this is a model. This is a bit of pig's liver and gallbladder. Um, and if you look at that bit over there between the, um, the woman on the left, the scrub nurse, the surgeon, the elderly surgeon, uh, and there's a gap in the middle. Just look at what happens there. The artery is separate. In mankind, men She doesn't women, appear to be paying any attention. The artery runs separate from it. But here you can see... I just have a scissor. You can see that the... <laughs> OK, so, so if you slow this down, what happens is 
Um, she, she's just looking all over the place. He puts out his hand. She's already got the instrument she knows he needs. She puts it in his hand. He takes his hand back, and then he says, scissors, please, sister. But he's got them already. And so the verbal talk is out of sync with the, um, with the actions. And that's what I mean about learning to read bodies, because they've worked together for so many years. Um, these things kind of just happen. Now, of course, it's rather different. This is keyhole surgery. So it's a different kind of surgery. It looks funny because the lights are a funny color. So everybody's not looking at the operation. They're all looking at a screen. Um, that's the screen in the middle at the top. Well, they're looking at a screen. You're not looking at a screen anymore. So, um, so, so this is a different kind of thing because there you're not looking directly at somebody's giblets inside. You're looking at a, a photographic mm. you know, video of mm. what's going on and you're touching things remotely through long sticks. Hmm. So you've got a different way of doing surgery, but in other ways it's, it's pretty similar because the patient is still under anaesthetic. I think what's very interesting is that there's now a third approach which hmm. is taking on a lot, which is where you... The robotics. You, which is, no, not robotics so ah. much, as interventional radiology, where if you're treating somebody with a heart attack or a stroke or something, you might feed a wire in through the... Uh, a tiny cut in their groin under local anaesthetic and feed a wiggly wire up to somewhere else, looking not directly at their insides but at screens and images and things. And they're awake. And so whereas with these the other sorts of operations, some of which you saw on the screen, um, the patient was under anaesthetic and in a sense could be bracketed out of the picture in the sense that they weren't talking to you. You, you knew they were there through monitors and things but they weren't saying anything. Now, you've got these often really very big procedures being done, but the patient is awake and can talk. And so the patient, as a person, rather than just a body, has come back into the operating theatre, which develops rather in the person's absence. And so there are these additional currents of conversation. And how is uh, that changing? How is, how is that changing technology then changing this really delicate um, choreography, as you describe it? I, I think it's, it's making it evolve and adapt. Um, I think even now, the, the people who are doing these, when, they, when, when, when it's the technical part of them doing technical procedures, they tend, rather like Fee Glover and the, um, and the, and the masks, to, to blank out um, unnecessary information and unnecessary um, calls on their attention. And when you're operating, it's, all, it's easy to see talking to the patient as unnecessary. Um, in the sense of guiding wires into the right place. Of course, it's crucially important um, from many points of view. And so, so I think one of the challenges is how, as a team, you can make sure that the patient's voice is attended to mm. at the same time as the surgeon's voice, the nurse's voice, all these other voices, how they're interwoven and how it all works. Could, um, we, hear, could we look at that clip again? We're back on. We're back on. Um, of, well, whatever you think, but there's particularly there's some footage you've got, which is... Yeah. Noisy. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I was just going to show you that. Uh, just go through to here. Um, you get this sense that the operating <laughs> theatre is a calm place of focused concentration, and it is in many ways. This is Barbara Hepworth in the 1940s giving, I think, a very strong sense of, of focus, calm, and you would imagine that this would be an almost silent environment. So I'm going to show you a brief clip now from some footage we took a couple of months ago um, of the operating theatre. It's anonymised, so it looks like a negative. We've done that so that you can't see it, but I think you'll get the sense of what's going on um, that some colleagues of mine and I have been doing. <laughs> surgery. 
And we put in subtitles, because it's difficult to hear the words, but you can see that somebody asks for a swab, not a swap. And you may wonder why it is that, that could happen, but if you listen to the noise, it gives some clues. So this is raising interesting issues, isn't it, about, about the soundscape of the operating theatre? Um, I probably, I mean, I, that music's quite surprising. Yeah. Um, so who, who chooses that? <laughs> who do you think chooses it? Sam? Well, it's the surgeon, isn't it's it? It's the surgeons. It's the surgeons who choose it. It's the anaesthetists who play it, usually. <laughs> no, seriously. Um, and nobody else has much of a... As much as, and it's the surgeon who chooses what it is. So people couldn't hear each other in there? No. Swaps were swaps and... That's right. Um, is that a worry? I think so. <laughs> it, it is to me. Um, I think it's, it's, it's interesting to think that in, in most other environments that require um, difficult, complex things to be done, you know, distractions are deliberately minimised. The, the aeroplane people, for instance, have a an arrangement, don't they? When, when they're taking off and they're landing, there's no extraneous noise. They don't have the radio on, they're not chatting about their holidays and things. This one's interesting, though, because I think what you see as noise and what you see as helpful background depends on who you are and what you're doing. So if you're the surgeon, um, you, you may be concentrating very hard on a particular bit, but when, when that bit's over and you're sort of sewing the patient up, then everything's calming down, it's time to relax a bit, you're on the home straight and everything's fine. Makes sense, perhaps, to turn the music up until you think that, that that's exactly the time when the nurses are having to do a swab count and make sure that all the instruments that went in have come out. Um, they're having to communicate with people who are in different parts of the operating theatre. We don't know who they are. Some people have hearing problems. There, there are all sorts of issues that might get in the way in an environment where communication is already distorted by masks, people facing in opposite directions. And I think the, the idea of looking at the operating theatre not just from the point of view of one group or another group, but as, a, as an environment, as a sort of ecosystem, where things need to be in a state of balance. It's very interesting, because <clears throat> this whole idea of noise, for example, is really, really uh, powerful. It, I mean, it's interesting, because I own a Heath session, later on I'll come on to this, and <clears throat> the interface between doctors, nurses, and other health professionals, <clears throat> and of course the patient. And, as well as it being a balanced ecosystem, it's sounding there as though there's, a, there's an inevitable hierarchy within it in terms of who determines yes. the music, which isn't obviously apparent, you know, and I guess everyone will have a role, and one might argue that, in fact, the scrub nurse's role is as important as the surgeon. Oh, I would argue that, absolutely. I would argue that all these roles are important, though differently so. Yes. That they're all essential. But even now, in the 21st century, the doctor somehow determines all sorts of things both in terms of how what music's played. We've had this discussions before in medicines and medicine and lots about remuneration and justice. Yeah, yeah. How, how is that still okay in the 21st century? I'm going to play, you know, rap music. I don't care if any of you can hear anything. Well, I, I don't know if it is okay. I mean, I think it's a, it's a case, really, of saying here is something that needs to be negotiated, yeah. rather than just taken as read, that it will go on in the way that it has been. I think 
by looking at it as a system rather than just as a practice of individuals. It makes it much easier to say, okay, from the system's point of view, there are, there are communications that need to, to happen. And I'll just show you two, two yes. quick examples. This is one of uh, some good communication, I think. Um, again, an operating theatre anonymous. That's all, please. So the surgeon says, gas on, please. Somebody else immediately says, gas coming. Um, after a few minutes, they say, gas on. So it's quite clear. Uh, the surgeon has, has asked for something. The surgeon is not looking all around, and activity happens all around. But somebody has acknowledged that, responded to it. He knows it's going to happen. It does happen. Fine. Here's another example. So we've got ambiguity here. We've got, we've got somebody, first of all, somebody says something, so need, need, need the suction, nobody says anything. We found from this work that it takes about um, five seconds after somebody's asked for something, if there's no response, before they start to get really, really pissed off. It doesn't take long at all, uh, because they expect to, to know. And that uncertainty of, of asking for something and, and no response is really, um, is really important, I think. We then get an ambiguous question where somebody says, is it okay to start, is it, or something, and, and nobody quite knows whether that means, yes, it's okay to start, or yes, I'm going to tell you when it's okay to start. And there's something here about, about there not being a recognised um, frame of communication that sorts that out, in the way that there is in the military, or the ambulance, or the, or the aviation, or whatever, where, or, or in, in the kitchen, yes, chef, no chef, you know, where when something, somebody asks for something, there's an acknowledgement. And I think there's a lot of stuff that we could do in, in sort of creating loops that, 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 that made it clear where requests have gone to, whether they've been, um, whether somebody's heard them, whether something's happening, whether it's not something, you know, all those things. A lot of it's about lack of clarity. And we found that by people not knowing, it kind of makes, it brings about anxiety yes, and yes. misunderstanding, yes. which you can imagine. Yes, very much. But the interesting thing about the operating theatre is that you haven't got the normal ways of checking normally. Uh, if I say, you know, is the, is the um, I don't know, is the screen working here? I'd, I'd be able to look around and see if it is. But if I'm sort of focusing on something that's about to bleed or something, I, I can't do that. And so because the, the normal peripheral vision and ability to walk around and see what's going on for yourself is distorted, there needs to be these other ways of doing it. But they, they haven't caught up, I think. When you play this kind of footage back... Mm. To surgical teams. Yes. What, do they do they see those holes? Is it apparent? Do they think it's obvious? I should have said. Yeah, yes, they, I'm they ready. tend to. I think that's because they see it on video. When you're in it, you don't notice yes. it because your your perspective is different. You're doing it, and you're very often not aware of what's going around. But that's part of the problem. When you see it from the outside through videos, you, you get a different point of view. Yes. Um, 
whether that actually makes people yeah, change. Does it? Another yeah, that's story. very interesting because um, it's... And also, yeah. also, we had a, an interesting um, occasion where we showed some of these videos about the music to, mm. Uh, mm. to a group of doctors and nurses. And the nurses beforehand had been very, very angry about this. It really um, was a problem for them. The music that's being the played. Music in, yeah. th in the music in theatre. Talk yes. to them one to one and they yes. would say that. Yes. In a group, yes. they never mentioned it. Yeah. The surgeon said, is this a problem? And they said, no, 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 no. It's nice to have music. It's relaxing, you know. And so, so there, are, there is a long way to go in getting, getting the conditions for, um, for dialogue to work outside the operating theatre as well as inside the operating theatre. To theater, feeling em empowered enough to be yeah. able to... Yeah. Um, yeah. Although, having said that, I mean, it does... It, surprisingly, it really does work, work pretty well yes. most of the time, yeah. Um, but once you start to look at these things... That you that everyone has taken for granted, yes. and try and peel back the cellophane and look underneath a bit, you start to see all sorts of interesting things that you weren't aware of. Another clip, or should we go some questions? Uh, no, I, well, I, I've got. Uh, I think that's enough, yep. really. Uh, uh, Can we have the uh, house lights up? Thank you. Assuming they work. <laughs> oh gosh, they're not going to turn them up now. That's me in trouble. That's it. Yes. We'll teach him sarcastic so and so. Can we have the house lights up, please? <laughs> Scalpel. <laughs> House lights, yeah. Please, can we... Yes, thank you. <clears throat> um, we have some microphones, and we would like to invite your questions. Lady down here, please, on the... On the just, if you would just wait for the microphone, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, that was very interesting. I work in emergency medicine, and I'm also involved with human factors training, which obviously this... Mm. Just tell us about that, because not everyone will know what human factors training is. What... Um, it is ex exactly as it is here. So it's all about being um, aware of the situational awareness, um, and it's what you learn from the aviation industry, the Formula One um, uh, sort of training as well. The, um, it's being aware of what your, either your limitations or, in fact, how much information you can take on board at a time. That's part of it. It's part of working in a team. It's getting rid of the vertical hierarchy and mm. getting horizontal hierarchy. Mm. So um, everybody in a team is very important. Everybody should know their role in a team. Uh, they should know the role in the team before the actual event starts. So from a trauma point of view, we get together five minutes before the trauma arrives. The trauma team arrives. We give them designated roles. Now, part of that, which is quite interesting, is that everybody's got a tabard on. Uh, designating their role mm. and in fact a name badge and so I used to say in the slightly older days as it were can somebody get me some IV fluids and of course the whole team would either not get me IV <coughs> fluids or the whole team would go and get me IV fluids and now it's a case of can whoever mm. please go and get that so one person's got a designated role and they need to go and do it and I can see it being very difficult in theatre because if usually, I'm sure you'd know your team, but it may be that you don't know who the ODP is or well, very what their often role nowadays, is. I'm sorry, sorry to I mean, very often nowadays you don't know your team okay. because the, the, I showed you that that clip of yes. the of the elderly team uh, as an example of a way of practicing that has pretty much become extinct now, where you had people who were working together in that team for 30 or 40 years, and so all that unspoken stuff that um, you know she gave him the scissors before he knew he needed them sort of thing doesn't happen now because very right. often you get people coming together to do a major operation who've never met until that day and so it's becoming um, these, these, these issues are coming to the surface in the days when <coughs> you would put out your you know the surgeon classically would put out his hand and, and um, say no 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 sister give me what I not give, give me what I need not what I ask for kind of thing you know, and, and, and she would um, 
And that depended on a long, a long time of working together. And, and surgeons would say, I need a, um, you know, and, and, and that kind of thing. And that doesn't work if you have to start from scratch with people you've never met. And so a lot of these things, I think, that were there in one form are now coming to the surface because they're being tested by the fact that that supporting framework is so different. I may just move your... Is that all right if I move on? Thank you. Um, just at the back there, on the right. Thank you. Left, rather. Um, I was thinking about um, another medical writer who's a surgeon, Atul Gawande, yeah. and considering um, his book, The Checklist Manifesto, yeah. and how that fits with um, you, the, the way of working in theatre, and I wonder if you had something to say about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a very interesting approach. For those of you who are not, not familiar with this work, he's a leading surgeon in America who has uh, uh, popularised the idea of having a checklist, as happens in many, many other um, forms of safety-critical practice, particularly like airline pilots, where at the beginning of an operation, you go through a simple list of who's in the room, what's this operation, who's the patient, are there any problems, what do we expect, kind of thing. I think it would make an awful lot of sense to, ex to extend that, really, and say, okay, um, how much music do we want? Um, you know, have we got the equipment? I mean, how are we going to respond to requests? That kind of thing. And just put out there in advance ways of doing things, a sort of house style of doing the operation that, that I think could quite easily fix some of these problems. It's an interesting point, isn't it? That, that, yeah. that the Gawande book has fixed the technical bits of the op, yet the voices remain... Technical and, and what are called non-technical in yeah. many ways, the things you were talking about. But actually, it doesn't, affect, it, it doesn't look yeah. at the voices and the, the way in which communication The communication happens, bits, I yeah. Think. There is a question down here, but is there anyone up the, in the top? Right, um, Bill, on the end here, if we could, and then I'll come to you, sir. Is that all right? There's a microphone on its way to you. Thank you, Bill Dost from Canada. Um, following on, I told Gawande's work is a gentleman by the name of Malcolm Gladwell out of Canada who writes in his book, Outliers, that not only is there the checklist issue, but there's also a hierarchy issue also seen not just in the operating room, but also in airlines, for example, where people will be afraid to challenge somebody in authority, um, especially where that authority may be not just age, but education, mm -hmm. income, yeah. and whatnot. And in the case of Singapore Airlines, where the authority is very much implicit, where a junior pilot does not want to challenge a senior pilot, they ran into a number of airline crashes and they had to sort of deal with that outside of the checklist issue. I'm wondering in an operating theater where things are very much more in, in, in a Western world where we can perhaps challenge some of the hierarchy issues, do you, do you suspect in the third world where perhaps hierarchy is much more prevalent that this may be more difficult, it may need to be challenged head on? Um, yeah, I think, it, I think it is more difficult in, other parts, in, in, in some parts of the world. I mean, cer certainly, I think that used to be very much the case in this country, you know, 20, even 20, 30 years ago, where there was this very strong sense that, that the, you know, the surgeon was the boss and, and knew and just... And, you know, from my own experience, I've been involved in things where strange things happened that everybody knew were wrong, but nobody said anything um, because they didn't challenge the surgeon. I think that we've had a radical change and it's now much, much easier in this country for people to challenge and, uh, it, you know, all these instances of the wrong leg getting cut off and things have really helped that because it's made it, um, I don't mean, you know, it, it, you know, have helped bring, make everyone aware that if anybody notices that anything's wrong, they have a duty to speak up. But I think you're absolutely right. In other parts of the world, that just isn't the case. Yes. And it's, it's much more 
um, a problem than, than we realise. There is a surgeon in the audience. Do they want to comment? Is there a, have we got a big spotlight that we can... <laughs> Not really. To, to put Did, that surgeon want... at their ease. I'm the only surgeon you... Did you want to... <coughs> Can we give you a microphone, please? Um, I was saying yeah. that, um, as I'm the only surgeon in the audience at Medicine Unboxed, I don't think... Uh, I think need a round of applause. My... <laughs> yes, yes, but my views are not entirely representative of my psychopathic but colleagues. But nonetheless? Um, I, I think, if I look back to when I started, um, the hierarchy was very definite. Um, the environment was very intimidating, but I think within the last five years, we've noticed uh, a definite change yeah. in the culture. Yeah, of an idea of teamwork. Um, there needs to be a leader. Mm, yes. Um, yeah. And uh, that's usually the guy doing the operation, or more and more nowadays, the women. Yeah. Um, so I think things are changing. Just yeah. as society is changing, we're changing. Yeah, we're that balance is terribly difficult, it, isn't it? The leader yeah. and the, and the yeah. Uh, yeah. gentleman down here did have a question. Thanks, Hugh. Uh, thank you. Um, I work in uh, literature and the medical humanities where perhaps we have a, a soft opinion that teaching um, trainee doctors um, about text and subtext helps with these communication <coughs> problems. And it's interesting to hear you say, ask the question does playing these videos back have any actual effect? I just wondered if you had any thoughts about um, what teaching surgeons poetry and text and subtext has to do with this. Does it have any effect or not? Is that wishful thinking on Well, how on, on would you art? see it? Can I ask, just return that question to you? What effect would you envisage it having or hope for it to have? Well, I think, I think possibly there's quite a an instrumental uh, effect in that if you can solve these um, communication problems, if you get people to understand what's being said and what's not said, then you save money and you save lives. Mm. I, I believe a large number of errors in hospitals are to do with um, human communication problems, and if you can improve those, then, then you uh, <laughs> instrumentally improve the lot. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I think, I think there's a lot to be gained by, by getting people to see what goes on, in this case, in the operating theatre, but many other clinical environments, as in a sort of textual sense, to, to see what goes on as, as a, a, a site of complex communication mm -hmm. that, can be, that can be looked at, that can be analysed, and that one can learn to do better, to perform better. And I think an awareness of the complexity and the sort of interweaving of different voices in these environments is really important. I think, that, I think that literature and poetry can help to do that. I'm not sure, if, well, they're certainly not the only way. But I think that idea of looking beyond what you yourself are doing to one particular person for a particular purpose, to seeing the bigger picture of the group of people you're working with and how communication and the voice in that sense can be expressed in all sorts of different ways. I think that's something that we really do need to help people think about because it's crucially important to understand the implications of what you yourself do on things that are happening in, in another part of a complex setting. And we've heard about the accident department, we've heard about the operating theatre, but I think it applies all over. Does anyone want to follow on with a comment about poetry teaching us to speak? Any poets brazenly ready to do that? Yes? There. I'm Imogen, I'm a medical student from Dundee University, and it was a response from the poetry there. I've actually observed uh, poetry in teaching rooms in surgery, um, 
of a team that you wouldn't anticipate. And it's a really useful lesson. It was um, in orthopedics in Dundee, in Nine Miles Hospital. And they have the poem Osmandius, if you're yeah. familiar with that. Is everyone familiar? So look upon, excuse the misquote, but look upon my works, ye mighty in despair. And the orthopedic surgeon there, he wanted to remind himself that though he thinks every day isn't that great, I just uh, fixed that hip, I did it. He knows that he has to, he reminds himself he has to be very careful because in the long term, he might have done more harm than good. He might have introduced sepsis or anything else into yes. the, there. And it's a really useful lesson. And everyone's very open to having this there as well. Mm. And he introduces it to the students every time they come for a teaching block. And so these things are being introduced. Sure. You know, you asked about poetry. about poetry. Yes, Roger. Thanks, um, Roger. Talking about poetry, I had an interesting opportunity to invite some poets to come along and see some surgery through simulation and, and come up, not, 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 not reading other people's poetry, but, but writing their own in response to what they picked up from the operating theatre. And of course, a poet's ear is so different from a surgeon's ear that they were picking up and reflecting and sending back all sorts of different things that the surgeons hadn't thought of. And that, again, very interesting, different responsiveness to words, to sounds, to... Um, to communication through a poet's mind. Um, really interesting. Orthopaedic consultants in, Ed in Scotland reading poetry. I've heard it all now. Um, <laughs> actually, we're going to have to halt here, but carry on over lunchtime. We have now got the choir. Are we going to stay and sing, or are we going to... We're going um, to leave. We're going to bail out. We have the I'm choir. not going to stay and no. sing. <laughs> a, a big round of applause, please. <laughs> Thank you.